Um, you're going to need a Bible, and uh, if you brought one, grab it. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we are going to be in verses 25 to 40 uh, this morning, the, the rest of chapter 7. Um, Christians and churches sometimes have very odd views about singleness. Um, not just odd, I think actually a lot of times Christians and churches have very unbiblical views about singleness. We kind of treat uh, singleness as if there's something wrong with you, if we're honest. I mean, we would, never, we would never outright say that, but we say things close to that. You know, if we meet someone in the church who's single, it's always just kind of like, oh, well, don't worry, it'll happen soon for you, or whatever, right? And uh, we actually view singleness, I think, if we're honest, as less than, than married people. And uh, we're just trying to get people married off because it's like, oh, singleness is like a curse for you. It must be. Um, for years, I did um, young adult ministry, and there were lots of singles, and it just became a meat market, if we're honest, right? New people would come in. It would be like, oh, who's the new lady? And all the single guys were like, hey, how's it going? I'm here to study the word, too, and get your number. And that's what happens, right? Singles ministries often in churches are like, we're, we have a singles ministry to get people married, right? And we just kind of view singleness as there's something wrong. Um, so we need to address, like I've said this before, and if you're single this morning, um, you need to hear, there is nothing wrong with you. You aren't broken because you're single, and we have done a really bad job as Christians and churches where we've elevated the higher calling is marriage and singleness is kind of less than. That's, that's kind of some of the worldview issues going on in, in uh, Corinth. If you remember, they were viewed, they were obsessed rather with status and who can be a better spiritual person. And we've kind of done the same thing. You're a better spiritual person if you're married. Now, in our passage this morning, uh, Paul is going to address singleness, and also he'll address married people. So you need to see, if you came this morning and you're married, it's not like, oh, sweet, this message is not for me. I can check out. No, uh, Paul uh, addresses married people as well, but in verses 25 to 40, he really addresses how should we view singleness in the church? So if you, if you have gone to university or college, you'll know that a lot of times when you write papers, you have to have like a thesis statement. Here is my thesis statement for this morning, okay? Singleness is not a burden to carry, but rather an opportunity to exploit. It's not a burden that you have to carry, but it's an opportunity if you are single. So Paul, I think, is going to make three points in our passage this morning reinforcing the idea that singleness is, is actually an incredible opportunity from God. So here's the first point Paul makes. Number one, singleness is actually an opportunity for singular devotion to Jesus. So verse 25, he says this, Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So we we have to understand, who is Paul uh, addressing here? We don't use the word betrothal a lot um, anymore. Literally, the word betrothed in the Greek language just means virgins. So people who have not had uh, sexual relations yet. So most likely, single. 
Um, but they used the word betrothed to, uh, with the idea of engagement. But don't think of our day and age where, you know, the guy goes on one knee and will you marry me and they're engaged now. Betrothal is like super engagement, Right, And so what would happen is the families were involved and families would kind of make an arrangement and you have a son and I have a, a daughter and we think that it would benefit our families and our uh, economic status and our social status and so they would work out a deal and oftentimes there was a bride price and the, the, the son's family would pay the daughter's family and then they would enter into a betrothal contract which was very, very serious. Um, Mary and Joseph in the Bible, they were betrothed. And you were kind of already viewed as husband and wife, and you couldn't just, you know, I don't want to marry you anymore and throw the ring back. That, you actually had to get a divorce legally, even if you were just betrothed. So it's like engagement on steroids. That's what betrothal is. Very, very serious. And you couldn't just back out if you got cold feet. It didn't work like that. So think through the scenario. Paul says, now, concerning the betrothed, the, the engaged. And so Paul is, is, is likely answering, well, not likely, he is answering the, the statement that was made in verse 1 of chapter 7. Do you remember? Uh, the statement that the Corinthians were making to Paul was, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That was their understanding. You're somehow more spiritual if you don't have sex. And so Paul's been addressing it, it, with married couples. No, don't do that. Engage in sexual relations with your spouse. And then he addressed singles momentarily. And then he addressed divorce. Should I divorce my spouse so I can be more spiritual because I'm single? And he goes, no, what are you doing? And now lastly, he's going to address people who are engaged. Because the question would naturally come up. Think about it. An engaged, betrothed couple comes to know Jesus, and now they're hearing this in the Corinthian church, and so likely they were saying, well, what do we do? Do we go through with the marriage? Do we get married? Is that less spiritual if we get married, or, or should we just break it off? Should we, should we break off the betrothal? So what, what does Paul say? He says, verse 25, I have no command from the Lord. All right, go in peace. Thanks for coming. No, I'm just kidding. But Paul, what does he mean when he says, I have no command from the Lord, uh, but my judgment is, is good? What is Paul saying? Paul is saying is that when it comes to the teachings of Jesus, um, Jesus never addressed this topic. Jesus never said, what should engaged couples do when they become followers of Jesus? He, this is uncharted territory. Right? It's similar to when Paul answered the question about what happens if my spouse is a, an unbeliever and I'm a believer. Jesus never addressed that topic. So Paul had to kind of uh, step into uncharted territory. So he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I'm going to give my judgment and I'm trustworthy. Because he's an apostle, right, who carries authority. Even if you look at the last verse, verse 40, uh, at the second half, he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So he gives all of his judgments. Here's what engaged couples should do. Here's what singles should do. And Jesus never talked about it, but Paul is saying, like, but my words count for something. right? I have the Spirit of God. I have authority. But what you're going to notice is Paul does not lay down a fixed universal rule. Because what should be done depends on an individual's circumstance. 
So Paul says, okay, uh, I'm trustworthy. Verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So Paul, Paul basically says the, the exact same thing he said in our passage last week. Just be content with where you're at in life. Um, so, so he says, if you're betrothed, there's no need for you to break it off. If you're married, you don't have to get uh, a divorce. If you're single, you shouldn't feel the need to get married. Basically, he's saying, just be content with your current situation. You don't, you don't have to freak out that if I'm married, I have to be single. Or if I'm single, I have to get married. Paul says, just, just be content with where you're at. But then he says, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. Um, that's, that's really important because likely there were people in Corinth who were saying that it's not good to be engaged. That it's probably a sin if these engaged couples go through with it and get married. And so Paul stresses, like, but if you decide to get married, you have not sinned. It's not a sin for you to go and get married. It's not a sin for you to stay single. But he says, but because of the present distress, right, um, stay Single. He says that at the end of uh, verse 28. He says, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Amen? Is that where we say amen? <laughs> right. All the married people? You're like, yeah, amen, Paul. Just, no? Okay. Um, so you go, well, what is Paul doing here? It says in verse 28, if you get married, you're going to have worldly troubles and I want to spare you from that. Like, is Paul just bashing marriage? Is he going, oh, man, it's going to be way worse if you get married. I want to spare you singles, all the trouble. So, okay, we need a few marriage jokes, okay? It's okay to laugh in church. Um, a husband and a wife were having several stressful months of financial difficulties. So one evening, the wife uh, was very touched to see her husband gazing at the diamond wedding ring that symbolized their commitment to each other. And it was almost as if like, yeah, you're right. He's looking at my ring. We can get through this. We can get through anything. And so she romantically began to say to him, with this ring, and he responded, we could pay off our visa. (laughs) Okay, one more. A husband and wife had been married for 60 years, and they had no secrets except for one, the woman Um, kept in her closet a shoebox that she forbid her husband from ever opening. But when she was on her deathbed and with uh, her blessing, he opened the box and he found a crocheted doll and $95,000 in cash. Uh, The woman said, "My, my, my mom told me that the secret to a happy marriage was to never argue, but instead I should just keep quiet and crochet a doll. And so her husband is so touched, only one doll was in the box. That meant that she had been angry with him once in 60 years of marriage. But what about all this money, he asked. Oh, she said, that's the money I made from selling the dolls. (laughs) So is this what Paul, is this this what he's talking about? Is he just bashing marriage as an old married couple and they just fight all the time and I would spare you that? Is is Paul anti-marriage? Just stay single, people. Trust me, marriage is awful. 
No, of course not. That's not what Paul is saying. But here's the reality, right? Paul is saying, married people, you will have troubles and issues that single people just don't have to deal with. That's just the truth. Now, worldly troubles that he says in verse 28, that doesn't necessarily mean sinful. Often we associate, you know, worldly things as sinful, but that's not the case here. These aren't sinful things Paul's talking about. He's just said there's things that singles, they don't have to wrestle through that married people have to wrestle through, right? When you get married, all of a sudden there's somebody else who you are accountable to. You can't just make whatever decisions you want. So um, before, uh, I'm going to talk about my wife, before Molly and I got married, uh, I was a, a youth pastor and a youth intern, and at like the drop of a hat, I, I would go and hang out with teens, and if they were like, hey, we're going to the lake to go uh, cliff jumping, do you want to come? I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. Hey, we're going to go do this and start a big bonfire and then like take turns riding our bikes over it. Then we never actually did that. But like things like that. And at a moment's notice, I'm like, yeah, I love being a youth pastor. I would love to go and hang out. And, and, then, and then in the, the process of time, we got married and then we had a kid. And I remember that it was an adjustment because I, I can't just leave everything and go out every night with teenagers. Right? And I remember a few times Molly said like, remember, you have a wife and a daughter now. Right? Your life doesn't belong to just you anymore. Right? So that's what Paul's getting at. He's saying married people have worldly problems that single people don't necessarily have to deal with. So Paul continues this thought. So I want, what I want you to do is if you have your Bibles, jump down to verse 32. Um, we'll come back to the section that we jumped. But in verse 32, he kind of continues this thought. Well, what, what do you mean, Paul? What kind of worldly troubles are you talking about? He says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. So it just makes sense what Paul is saying. It's just true. Now, the word anxious there is not uh, a bad thing, right? In our day and age, and anxiety is this terrible thing. But when he uses the word anxious, you know, the married man, man is anxious, it literally just means he's concerned. The married man is concerned about how he can please his wife, and the, the married woman is concerned, anxious about how she can please her, her, her husband. And notice that he says, a single person can be solely concerned how do I please Jesus? A married man, a married woman, their interests are divided. They still think, how do I please Jesus? But also, all right, how do I please my spouse? How do I live with this other person? I, I'm not my own anymore. I belong to someone else now. So just imagine, if you will, right, that it came out in the news that there was um, civil war in I don't know, pick a country, Ethiopia, and uh, the Christian church was rising up, and they're like, we're going to help refugees, or we're going to set up refugee camps, or we're going to take people in. Me as a married person, I can't go, I'm going tomorrow. See you later, wife and three kids. No, why? My interests are divided. I have responsibilities here. But it's much easier for a single person to go, I got to get over there. I want to go help. 
See, their interests aren't divided. They are solely focused on how do I serve Jesus? So Paul, what Paul is saying is single people, listen, if you're single here, there are some big advantages to being single. You can have singular devotion to people uh, to, to Jesus that married people can't. And notice what Paul says in verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. When he says, I say this for your own benefit, the your there is plural. Like best translated, it's y'all. I say this for y'all's own benefit. So he's saying, to whose benefit? To the church's benefit. Do you see what that means? What Paul is saying is, single people, you are a benefit to the church. You are a benefit to the kingdom of God. Paul says, you're not, it's not a burden that you have to carry, and the church doesn't go, oh, we have too many singles, we got to get them married up. No, it's to your benefit. Why? Because single people can focus solely on the mission, solely on loving and serving Jesus. Um, many of you, I know, read um, missionary stories because they're just so encouraging, these, these different men and women that um, lay down their lives for the kingdom of God to advance the gospel. Um, some of you may have heard the name Mary Slessor. Um, she was an amazing woman, um, a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to Nigeria in the late 1800s. Um, at 28 years old, 28 years old, she went to Nigeria from Scotland because she just wanted to serve the Lord. And uh, this is what was said about her. She enjoys the unreserved friendship and confidence of the people and has much influence over them. Um, in that day and age in, Ni in Nigeria, in Western Africa, there was this kind of traditional belief about twins that were born and the belief was that if you gave birth to twins, one was surely evil and one was good. And some of you with twins are like, well, maybe there's some truth to that. Um, just kidding. Uh, but that was the belief. And so a lot of times couples in, in Nigeria would either abandon one twin or both. They would just go, we don't, even, we don't even want to deal with it. And so many, many children died because of this superstition. And Mary Slessor, she actually saved hundreds upon hundreds of twins out of the African bush. She actually even adopted a few of them. And what she would do is she would go tri from tribe to tribe to tribe in, the, in the, the jungle, and she would share the gospel with people and teach them that this superstition of, of killing your t twins is just nonsense. And so many lives were saved by this single 28-year-old woman. And, and, and then she got word back home that her mother and her sister had both died. And do you know what her response was? This is what she wrote. There is no one to write and tell my stories and nonsense to. Heaven is now nearer to me than Britain, and no one will worry about me if I go up country. So did you, do you see that her response wasn't, well, now I got to leave the mission field. Her response was, well, now my mom and sister won't worry if I go deeper into the jungle to share the gospel with people. So what, what's so unique? Mary Slessor had a singular devotion to Jesus. She did things as a single 
that perhaps a married person couldn't do. And she's not the only. There's so many stories of single men and women who have given their lives for the kingdom of God. And so if you're single and you're here this morning, please hear me. The church needs you. Your singleness is not some terrible thing that you just got to wait and get through. Use it as an opportunity to exploit Take advantage of the season that you're in. God might call you to just a season of singleness, or he might call you to a lifetime of singleness, but use it. The church, we need you. We desperately need singles in the church for the kingdom of God. So Paul, Paul says there's certain things that singles can do that married people just can't do. Because married people, their, their, their interests are divided. We have other concerns now that single people don't necessarily have. So does that mean that married people are off the hook? No. So do you remember, we, we kind of we jumped over verses 29 to 31, but Paul actually addresses uh, everybody in these verses. Verse 29, it says this, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul addresses everybody. And so point number two that he makes, right, point number one is, you know, singleness is actually an opportunity for singular devotion to Jesus. Point number two Paul makes is, however, for all of us, the time is short. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. What does he mean? What is the appointed time? The appointed time is the return of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. He will return. That's the appointed time. And when Paul says it's grown very short, I love it. The word actually means that it's compressed, that it's, it's kind of squeezed in. Like Jesus is coming back. Now, again, uh, here's a little pet peeve of mine. Um, Christians, uh, I think, and especially in the last 30 or 40 years, we've just had a really wrong view of the end times. Um, we have this idea that, well, we're not there yet. We're not in the end times yet. That's the future still. The end times is the future, and then what we would spend all our time doing is trying to figure out how it's all going to happen. What's the order of things? And then people write books, and I've cracked the code, and I know, and then ah, a third blood moon, and blah, blah, this is what we're the, and this is we know, and then pin the tail on the Antichrist, and I know who it's going to be, and then, you know, Trump moves the embassy to Jerusalem, oh, it's the second, and listen, I think we've actually hurt our witness as a church, because the world looks at that and goes, you guys are crazy, and we look like the person on, with all the strings and we're like, look, I figured it out. And I, and I would say, okay, even if you figured out all, all the events and the order of how it's going to happen, have you told your neighbor about Jesus lately? And even if you figure out the order of events, who cares? Can you stop it from happening? No. And actually, biblically... Do you know how the end times are described? The end times are, began the moment that Jesus ascended into heaven. You are actually already living in the end times. 
you are living in the last days. Since Jesus ascended into heaven, we're in the end times. Um, Acts 2.17, right? The Holy Spirit is given at Pentecost, and Peter stands up, and he preaches this this sermon, and he quotes Joel, and it says this, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Well, when did that happen? It happened at Pentecost. Peter was saying, these are the last days. God is pouring out his spirit on all flesh. We're living in it. Um, Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the, prophet, by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. James 5.3, you've laid up treasure in the last days. So we're living in it. We are in the end times and we have been for 2,000 years. So I think we've actually done harm to the church's witness when we just sit around trying to go, well, I wonder how this event is going to happen and who the... It's like we're living in it, so just every day live as though Jesus is coming back. That's what Paul's saying here, actually. What he's saying when he says the time, the appointed time has grown very short, what he means is that the time to Jesus coming back is, is coming up. Like literally, you sitting here, Jesus is closer to coming back now than yesterday when you were mowing your lawn and making dinner. It's getting shorter, right? And tomorrow will be one day closer to Jesus coming back. Paul's saying every day that goes by, Oh man, it's getting closer and closer and closer. Paul is less concerned about us figuring out how much time is left, but how does the death and resurrection of Jesus change the way that we view the time that is left? So Paul's not saying, well, Jesus might come back tomorrow, so don't get married. Paul is saying, actually, the end has broken into the present and it requires a reevaluation of all that we do in a world that if we're honest, Last legs, people. Like a, a clear-sighted end times perspective should affect the way that you live as a follower of Jesus. And so then Paul gives five examples, right? He says, well, the time is growing short. Well, what does that mean? Well, from now on, if you're married or if you have a wife, live as though you had none. I'm going to explain that, fellas, okay? <laughs> Sweet, I'm going out. no. And if you mourn as though you're not mourning, and if you rejoice as though you're not rejoicing, and if you buy as if you had no goods, and, and if you uh, deal with the world, then, then you had no dealings with it. So they're opposites. What is Paul doing here? And the reason he gives is, well, the present form of the world is passing away. Here's how you live now. So is Paul contradicting himself? Is he saying, well, just live, pretend that you don't have a wife and never mourn and never rejoice and don't buy any stuff? No, to take what Paul says literally would just be absurd. Paul is actually using rhetoric as a way to kind of cement his point. And here's his point. Time is short, so live in light of Jesus' imminent return. The day-to-day affairs of the world are passing away, so prioritize your human relationships, your material possessions, and your worldly dealings accordingly. The things that he listed are not permanent. Marriage is not permanent. It does not last for eternity. Material things won't last. So live in light of eternity is, is what Paul's saying. 
So he, he's not saying that, there's, listen, there's nothing wrong with marriage. There's nothing wrong with having a wife or a husband. There's nothing wrong with mourning or rejoicing. There's nothing wrong with buying goods or dealing, you know, selling things and dealing with the world in and of themselves. Those are not wrong and sinful, but they aren't the be-all and end-all. They shouldn't be the, the, the be-all of your life. So let's walk through the examples, right? Number one, he says, those with wives live as, as if they had none. So Paul is not saying, well, honey, I'm going out because God told me to. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying, I can just ignore my spouse. <laughs> Your marriage is important, but it is not the ultimate. And time is short, married couples. And so live for eternity. Live for the kingdom. Don't find your joy in your spouse. Your joy is in Christ. Um, my wife and I do lots of premarital counseling with couples, and uh, we talk uh, about conflict. And how do you resolve conflict as a married couple? Um, and, you know, being married and talking with lots of people who are married, I am convinced that probably 96% of the things that we argue and fight about as couples is so dumb. It's just dumb. And Paul would say, guys, do you realize that Jesus is coming back and you're arguing how to fold the towels? It's actually like very inconsequential. And so much of our conflict is just because I'm selfish and I think that I'm right and then I'm going to dig my heels in and not be mature. Like literally the things that like me and my wife have fought about and the things that I know you fought about, if you actually just went, whoa, time out. Okay, if Jesus came back right now, like would this actually matter? You forgot to load the dishwasher. Oh, okay, sorry. Not, well, you always do this, blah, blah, blah. And we just fight about such stupid things. Living in light of eternity would be, yeah, you know what? I don't care how the toilet paper goes in the thing. It's inconsequential. Jesus is coming back. That's what Paul means. Right? Don't just be bogged down with all of the silly things that we do in our marriages. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Live in light of his return. And then he says, well, if those who mourn, here's the second example, as though they were not mourning. So does this mean that we're just not ever allowed to be sad? Uh, no, that's not what Paul means. Um, as a follower of Jesus, hopefully you know that our mourning looks much different than the rest of the world. Um, when I was a youth pastor in, in Maple Ridge, um, there, was on, uh, there was a horrific car accident that happened, and two teenage girls died. Um, one was a follower of Jesus, and one wasn't. And both funerals were held at our church on the same weekend, on a Friday and then on a Saturday. And I attended both funerals. And let me tell you, uh, those funerals were night and day different. On Friday, the person who, the girl who didn't know Jesus, um, I would just call it despair. There was, there was not an ounce of hope. It was just, well, she, she had a good 16 years. And then Saturday came, and it was the follower of Jesus, her funeral, and it was night and day difference. I kid you not. 
It was, yes, we're going to miss Crystal. But she knew Jesus, and she is with Jesus. And it was a celebration. There was hope. Yes, there was tears. This is what Paul means. When you and I mourn, we don't mourn like the world mourns. We mourn, yes, because there's sadness and we're going to miss them, but there actually is no mourning for the believer. You realize that? Because like Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is your sting? We actually don't die. Yes, your body goes to sleep, but immediately if you're in Christ, you are in his presence. So yes, we mourn, but we don't really mourn. Same, but thirdly, Paul says those, those who rejoice as though they weren't rejoicing. So you're saying, well, Paul, are you saying I'm just not allowed to ever be excited about anything? No, that's not what he means. But listen, the things that you rejoice about now, it will pair in comparison when Jesus returns. Um, I, I was in the delivery room for all three of my kids being born. And I got to cut the umbilical cord of all three of my kids and hold them like seconds after they were born. And you talk about rejoicing, man, just tears of happiness, and you're rejoicing. And you go, what could be better than this? I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, the return of Jesus will be way better than that. So yes, rejoice, but you're not really rejoicing in light of eternity. Like, like Paul goes on, number four, those who buy as though they had no goods. So this, does this mean that I can never buy anything? No, that's not what he means. And some of you are like, oh, thank goodness. Amazon. No. But here's what Paul says, and this will sting for some of you, but, but don't be consumed with your consuming. Listen, shopping and buying things is not your life. That will distract you. So live as if you had no goods. And lastly, he says, those who... Who, who deal with the world, live as if you have no dealings with it. This is kind of like a, a financial business type example. So Paul's not saying, well, I got to sell my business and never deal with anybody. No, of course not. But you, you don't need to make full use of the world to build some kind of empire for yourself here. Don't become enmeshed in the world in all your dealings. Live for eternity. Paul actually puts it really succinctly in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. He gives the exact same thing. He says, as unknown, he's describing themselves as unknown and yet well-known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul says the time is short. If you're single... Or if you're married, the time is short, so live in light of eternity. Make the best use of your time before Jesus returns. Now, lastly, Paul ends in verses 36 to the end with just guidelines for singleness. So if, this is his third point, right? Number one, singleness is, is singular devotion to Jesus. Number two, time is short. Whether you're single or married, so live in light of eternity. And number three, he just says, well, here's some guidelines. Let me give you some practical things to, to navigate singleness. He says in verse 36, if anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly uh, towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he'll do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she, wish, to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So Paul just gives some like really practical advice to singles or to those who are engaged, not married yet. He says in verse 36, if you're engaged and your passions are strong, He's talking sexually. He's saying if your desires for sexual things are so strong, just get married. It's not a sin to marry. But then in verse 37, he says, but if you're someone who thinks that I, I think God's actually given me the gift of singleness, I, I have it in my heart, I'm not under a necessity to get married, I have all of my desires under control, he says, well, you can stay single. And I love that he says if you get married... You do well, but if you stay single, you do even better. So notice, it's not a case of one is good and one is bad. Paul doesn't say marriage good, singleness bad. He doesn't say singleness bad, marriage good. He, he says actually marriage is good, but singleness is even better. But for both of you, live in light of eternity. Time is short. And then he says, widows, if your husband dies, you are free to marry someone else as long as he's a believer. But in Paul's opinion, he goes, actually, I think you'll be much happier if you just stay as you are. So let me remind you, this whole chapter, chapter 7, Paul is answering worldview problems that the Corinthians had. This whole chapter is answering the question, is it good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman? They, they had this idea that in order to be more spiritual and higher on the, the, the social ladder and the spiritual ladder, well, then I just have to be single, and that's the ultimate. And if I'm married, then I should get divorced and be single. And, and, and Paul uh, is trying to correct some of their thinking. Paul says, singleness is a gift from the Lord. Some people are called to it. Marriage is a gift from God. And some people are, are, are called to it. But ultimately, I love that Paul stresses, but for married or single people, time is short. Jesus is coming back. Whatever your life situation is, be devoted to him. And singles, you have a unique ability that married people do not have, that you can be singularly devoted to Jesus. It's, it's not a burden for you to carry. Singleness is an opportunity for you to exploit for the kingdom of God. And so bottom line, we, we need singles and we need married people in the kingdom of God. And so I believe Paul would say, because he's kind of hinted at it, so rather than compare and complain, be content where you're at and all of you live with eternity in mind. So I want to close in prayer. I'll ask the team to come up. We want to sing one more song as we close. But would you just pray with me? Um, Father, I thank you for your word. Um, thank you that it gives such clear instruction to us. That even though this letter written to the church in Corinth wasn't written to us, it is written for us. 
and it benefits our walk with you, Jesus. So God, I just ask that you would forgive us of our unbiblical views of singleness. I think actually a lot of damage has been done to our single brothers and sisters when we elevate and and idolize marriage and then view singleness as some kind of curse or something's wrong with you. God, thank you that you have given marriage as a gift to some and singleness as a gift to others. And so I pray for our single brothers and sisters, I pray that they would not view their singleness as some kind of burden that they have to carry, but they would view it as an opportunity to exploit for the kingdom of God, that they would be singularly focused and devoted to you, Jesus. I pray that uh, regardless of our marital status, that all of us would realize that the time is short That we are closer to your return, Jesus, than ever before. And tomorrow we will be yet closer still. And that we would live with this eternity in mind that regardless of whether we're married or single, if we're mourning or rejoicing, if we're buying or selling, whatever it is, that we would be devoted to you, Jesus, and live our lives with your imminent return in mind. So just do that work in us, Jesus. Uh, help us to be focused and devoted to you uh, until your return. And we pray like the book of Revelation ends, uh, come Lord Jesus. Uh, We're ready for your return. Would you come? And so I just pray all of this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.